Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, you may remember the shocking story five years ago of a couple that intentionally drove their SUV off a Northern California cliff, killing their six adopted children inside. The story spawned national news coverage and documentaries asking how the adoptive parents could have done this, what were the women's backgrounds, and what was going through their heads. But a new book by journalist Roxana Esgarian traces the children's stories and those of their birth families, torn apart by the failures of Texas's foster system. We'll find out what Esgarian learned after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. In 2018, Jennifer and Sarah Hart murdered their six adopted children, Devante, Jeremiah, Sierra, Abigail, Hannah, and Marcus, when they deliberately drove them off a Mendocino cliff. The parents were white, their adopted children black and mixed race. Reporter Roxana Esgarian, unlike many who investigated or covered the shocking murder-suicide, was not focused on the Hart's psychological motivation. As Garion says, what motivated her most was to see and share the children themselves and the birth families they came from, the parts of the story, she says, that had been made invisible. As Garion's new book is called We Were Once a Family, a story of love, death, and child removal in America. And she joins me now. Welcome to Forum. Thanks for having me. So, Roxana. Gosh, could you remind us of that initial coverage of the story? Because I definitely remember being the local news anchor at the time and seeing those initial reports of, you know, an overturned SUV at the bottom of a rocky cliff and several bodies and autopsies that showed the children had been drugged and so on. Can you just remind us what the hearts did to their kids that March night in 2018? So... Uh, initially the reports were just that this family had gone over the cliff and the cliff, um, was along the Pacific coast highway, which, um, you know, is, is known actually for accidents like that. So, uh, initially investigators assumed that it was an accident, but they soon noticed that there were no signs of breaking, um, of the car breaking, when it went off the cliff. And uh, they also realized that the the family who had been living in Washington state 
um, they were notified that CPS had opened an investigation on them and had recently attempted to make contact with the family before Mm -hmm. the crash. There are also reports of how I think massive amounts of Benadryl were found in the kids' systems. Yeah, yeah, that came out later during the inquest that um, that the women had drugged the children and had done some Google searches about how much Benadryl uh, would kill a human and um, how long it would take to die of hypothermia in mm-hmm. the ocean and 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 things like that. And and you mentioned the CPS investigation. As the story unfolds, and and there's a lot of attention on the adoptive parents, um, we learned that they had been investigated for child abuse in three different states. What can you tell us about about some of the things that were unfolding along those lines? So, um, yeah, so the Washington State investigation was actually the third CPS investigation against the family. Um, The family originally lived in Minnesota, and they adopted the kids from Texas. So there was a CPS investigation in Minnesota, and actually one of the women was charged with domestic abuse for for physically harming one of the kids. Um, And then they moved to Oregon, where there was another CPS investigation that found that the kids were so small that five out of six of them weren't even on the growth charts for their ages. Mm. So the accusations were that the women were withholding food from the kids and the kids were malnourished as a result. Yeah. So much of that initial coverage, as I mentioned, did really focus on Sarah and Jennifer Hart. Uh, You dissect in your book, We Were Once a Family, just some of the different ways um, that the story of Sarah and Jennifer Hart, how they were being told that, you know, initially there was even sympathy for the hearts um, by law enforcement talking about these must have been parents who were under great stress, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, It emerged in, it was interesting because the media narrative, um, And this is, I I came into the story in 2018 because I got an assignment to report on the birth families. And so as I was beginning my reporting in that lane, I realized that many of the mainstream accounts were uh, not focused on the birth families at all or the child welfare system at all. Um, And that there was a narrative among many of these stories that was very um, that cast the women in a very positive light, considering that they had murdered their children. Right. And at other times, that was uh, co-opted and used to be homophobic, or there was elements of that in the accounts as well from some, quote unquote, news organizations. Yes, for sure. Um, because the women were a married couple Um, I think the New York Post wrote that woke moms killed their kids or or something like that. Yeah. But the main point, of course, as you just point out, is that lost in the focus on Sarah and Jennifer Hart was the attention to the adopted children and, and completely forgotten were the birth families of the children. Can you talk a little bit about getting the assignment to look into them? Um, 
and and how the children and the birth families which you just alluded to earlier were treated in the mainstream mer- narrative you you've called them largely invisible talk about how that played a role in how you reported on them sure um so i got a breaking news assignment from the oregonian which is the portland daily newspaper and they had received a tip on who the one of the birth families was so the there were six kids and they were from two separate sibling groups so there were two birth families involved um and part of the issue was nobody knew who they were at first um you know adoptions often seal all the records um and child welfare cases as a whole are confidential hmm. so that was i think the initial issue was that the uh that reporters didn't know who they were but right. as I got to know the first birth family i realized that many times in mainstream stories they would talk about sherry davis who was the birth mom of three of the kids and just say she was a crack cocaine addict and that was the only information that you got about sherry or about the family um but on the ground i could see that the davis family sherry davis's family wanted the kids badly and two family members had attempted to get custody and keep custody of the kids and had lost it for various reasons. Wow. Um, You know, one of the things that I think you make really clear is that by forgetting about the birth families, not saying much more than the mother of one of the families of three of the children was a crack cocaine addict, that, that it basically also absolves a system or a foster system, the system that these families interacted with, or at least lets them off the hook in terms of the role that they played in having those kids be with Jennifer and Sarah Hart. Yes, very much so. And it also played into the exact same narrative that Jennifer Hart, who was extremely vocal on Facebook and social media, also told about the family. Uh, She said the kids came from harrowing abuse where they were shooting guns and only knew cuss words, um, which wasn't true, but it it played into the same narrative that many of us just assume about people who interact with CPS. We're talking with Roxana Asgarian, who has re-examined the 2018 murders of six children, Sierra, Abigail, Jeremiah, Devante, Hannah, and Marcus. Uh, through the lens of the birth families and of the six adopted children themselves. And I want to invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation. Do you remember this story? If you do, what do you remember about it or the impression that you were left with, especially from the coverage prior to this? What are your questions about it now? What are things that you still want to know? And if there are experience of fo- experiences of foster care or adoption that you would like to share um, that this conversation brings up for you, you can feel free to do that too. You can email forum at kqed.org, find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum, or give us a call at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. You told, I think it was the LA Times, that you understand that it's normal and human for people to wonder how someone could possibly do something like this when you're hearing about this, you know, 2018 Mendocino murder-suicide of eight people and so on. Um, But you also uh, critique that 
that focus. Can you talk a little bit about what are some of the pitfalls of focusing so much on sort of the psychological question of the perpetrators? I think that when people uh, overly focus on the individual element, um, a lot can be lost. You know, the women died uh, along with their children. And so just rehashing this really terrible tragedy um, for like entertainment, it seemed to me um, kind of harmful for, especially because the child welfare system itself is so underreported and so many people have misunderstandings and misconceptions about the role of the child welfare system, um, particularly in poor and black families. And so I felt like if we focus so much on Jennifer and Sarah, we're kind of by extension doing what they did to their own kids, which was make them props in a story about themselves. Mm. And you say, of course, that they they died. Like, we will never know why, right? And so many of the focus on the motivations of perpetrators, it's extremely individual. It's a rare set of circumstances. I think there's this part of us that believes, because I see it a lot after mass shootings, right? What, What was the motivator of the shooter, motivation of the shooter? And really... It's hard to know. And even if you did know because you believe that by figuring it out, you could address it. So far, it's not preventing us from having any more mass shootings. <laughs> so um, I think it is important sometimes to remember it's a really hard thing to actually know. And the value of that may not be as great, great as we think. Well, coming up, we're going to really focus on what as Garion learned about the kids. And Regina writes on Instagram, Amen. Thank you for turning your focus to those babies who had no choice, no voice. We're talking with Roxana Asgarian. Her book is We Were Once a Family, a story of love, death, and child removal in America. Stay with us for more Forum after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the 2018 murders of six children by their adoptive parents who also committed suicide when they drove their family off a cliff in Mendocino. Roxana Asgarian, in her new book, We Were Once a Family, A Story of Love, Death, and Child Removal in America, is not talking about the family that went over the cliff. She is talking about the birth families of the children who had wanted them and who struggled and were unable, ultimately, to get them. 
And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation. You may remember the stories. It happened in California. It, it had a lot of coverage. There were documentaries. There was national news that was made uh, from this. And if you have questions that are still unanswered for you, feel free to email forum at kqed.org, post them on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum, or to call 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. And let me go to Anika, who is on the line in Panol. Hi, Anika, you're on. Hi. Hi. Hello. Nice to be here. Yeah, um, Thanks. I'm I'm calling. I sort of have a comment. I had been following this closely, and I remember when I read what had happened to the kids and how they kind of drove off, you know, drove off and killed them. And I remember there had been images not long before, kind of around the time of like a lot of Black Lives Matters protests of the young boy, the black boy, I think, Devante, and it was a picture of him hugging a police officer. Hmm. And a lot of how it was being shared through media, social media, everything was like, you know, we can all come together. We're all happy. This little black boy loves this white police officer. Things are perfect. And I was like, what I was so striking about this image of this boy hugging him is that his eyes were so, like, terrified and kind of, like, like dead inside. And I remember I called up a couple of people and I was like, have you seen this picture of this kid? He looks so scared. Yeah. He looks so scared. And you could just see something in his eyes. And I was like, oh, my God, like, what's going on? We need more information. There was nothing there. And then this story came out later about what happened to them. And uh, it, it just it just killed me inside because I feel like his eyes, it just he looked haunted. Mm. And it was upsetting to see how it was kind of being used, kind of like propaganda. So yes. thank you for, for following up on this with the families and more information. Yeah, thank you, Anika. And and that is an image that went viral in 2014 of Devante, one of the kids that, that was killed. Um, and, and Roxana Esgarian let let's talk about let's talk about Devante and his siblings and the Davis family um if because there were as you said two children the six children were born to two families in Texas and one of them was Devante um from the Davis family yeah um so the Davis family, um, Sherry, as as we mentioned earlier, had a, a drug problem, but there were other people in the family who were willing and able to care for the kids. But um, the first was a birth uh, was a father figure, but he wasn't the biological dad. But the kids had lived with him since birth, and they had his last name. He was Nathaniel Davis. And I think because he wasn't the biological father, the court did not understand that relationship. And ultimately, um, they were removed because he was still uh, allowing the mom to see the kids, Um, which, you know, she had a drug problem, but she was able to be functional. It was it just wasn't she just couldn't be the primary caretaker. Um, and then they moved to their aunt and the aunt was, a you know, church going woman with a full-time job, but her, uh, mistake was that she let Sherry, the mom babysit the kids when she was in a bind, when her normal childcare fell through and she needed to keep her job because she had four more kids, uh, in her home. So the three Davis kids had an older brother who was also living with their aunt and she lost all of them that day when a caseworker stopped by unannounced and saw their mom there. Hmm. 
And she had wanted to be able to take them. And the mom had even terminated her parental rights to enable Priscilla, the aunt, to take them? Yeah, exactly. Because you can't adopt kids who legally have parents. And so uh, Sherry's lawyer uh, said that she should, you know, she uh, they recommended that she relinquish her rights so that the adoption process could begin with the aunt. Um, but what Sherry didn't know was that when she terminated her parental rights, the kids were not were free for adoption by anybody, not just the person that she was under the impression hmm. would get them. And that actually happened in the case of the other birth family as well. Yes. Let's talk about the other birth family. Um, and this is the the Sherrick children? Yeah. Tammy Sherrick is the... Um, Sherrick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, and actually those kids, that's Marcus, Hannah, and Abigail. They were the first three that were adopted. Um, and they were born in both Corpus Christi and Columbus, Texas. And Tammy um, had experienced... Uh, on and off homelessness, and she has some mental illness issues. And um, the kids were removed from her because of medical neglect. So it was Hannah was extremely sick one time, and she didn't have a car. Um, they were living in Columbus, and they wanted she wanted Hannah to go to the hospital in Houston, which is about an hour away. Um, but the ambulance wouldn't drive her other children. And so she had a brand new baby at that time, Abigail, and the oldest was Marcus. And so there was nobody to watch the kids. It was, it was again, a childcare issue. Um, And the person who ended up driving her was her caseworker, her CPS caseworker. And when they arrived at the hospital, the caseworker handed her removal paperwork right there on the spot. Hmm. Now in Tammy's case, her children Marcus, Hannah, and Abigail, she thought if she gave up her parental rights that they would go to a family that she'd known, right? Yes. So their first foster family was a Black couple uh, who had kids of their own, and she knew them, and um, she saw them during visits, and they told her that she could keep in touch and that she could um, get updates about the kids. And they were local. They lived in Houston, so they were pretty close by. Um, But again, when she relinquished, um, she lost touch with that family and they, for some reason, gave the kids up um, and they ended up in Minnesota, which was, you know, a thousand miles away. And Tammy, you know, both Tammy and Sherry, when you relinquish your rights, you don't get any updates. You're not allowed to get updates. So you they literally had no idea what was going on with their kids after that. And they had no idea and were not told when their children were killed, right? Right. So um, in the Davis family's case, their attorney, it was actually the aunt's attorney who saw the case on the news and called and alerted the family. Um, But in the Sherrick family's case, no one... (laughs) It was six months later when I tracked them down. Um, So that was October and the crash had happened in March and uh, they didn't know. They didn't know that their kids were murdered and they, you know, the grief was really, it was like 
they were so upset to obviously hear the worst possible thing, you know, but also the fact that no one called them and let them know was just really inhumane. We're talking with Roxana Asgarian, law and courts reporter for the Texas Tribune, who's written a book called We Were Once a Family, a story of love, death, and child removal in America, about the children who were murdered in Mendocino in 2018 by their adoptive parents. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation with your reactions, thoughts, or questions. Kathy writes on Instagram, absolutely heartbreaking. It is really heartbreaking, Roxana, that the children's respective birth mothers gave up their parental rights um, with the idea that they, by doing this, they would facilitate their children's adoption to people that they knew. Mm-hmm. And that didn't happen. And we could be tempted to look at this as like a really unfortunate oversight by the child welfare system in Texas. But you have data that shows that actually Texas is quite unique in terms of the high numbers of how much this happens, right? Yeah. Um, you know, Texas is uh, is an outlier in some ways and then is pretty indicative of the rest of the system in other ways. I think um, Texas is unique in moving to terminate, filing for termination of rights right away upon removal. Uh, they do this concurrently with the reunification plan. So just in case it doesn't work, they are ready to go to terminate the rights. But, um, you know, there's federal legislation that was passed in the 90s, um, the Adoption and Safe Families Act, that basically mandates that parental rights are terminated when a kid is in foster care for 15 of the last 22 months. So that puts a timeline, a very speedy timeline on parental rights terminations. And those that's people call it the civil death penalty. It's it's a hugely consequential uh legal move for, you know, there are many parents who who say they would choose to go to prison over losing the rights to their children. You had this stat in your book where you compare it actually to California, where you say in 2015, Texas permanently severed 296 children's legal bonds with their parents for every 1,000 children in care. In California, which has 20,000 more foster children than Texas, the ratio is 118 of every 1,000, so significantly less. Mm-hmm. Anika had called earlier about Devante of the Davis family and about that image of him hugging a police officer. And there are just some real details in your book that show just how much Devante wanted to be loved and did not want to be separated from his siblings, um, Jeremiah and Sierra. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, um, Devante, Devante's older brother, Dante, uh, who stayed back and was passed up for adoption because he had high behavioral needs, um, he had a particularly strong bond to like Dante and Devante had a particularly strong bond. And um, I think, you know, in the midst of the abuse uh, by the Hart women, Devante had sought help from a neighbor in Washington state, but he repeatedly asked her not to call CPS because he didn't want to be split up from his, his siblings. And that includes, you know, the Shurik kids as well. His, all five of his siblings, they wanted to stay together, but they, um, they were coming to the neighbor begging for food 
um, a lot, like large amounts of food. And, um, you know, ultimately that neighbor did call CPS. How was it that even though these were being reported, and there are reports from teachers as well about concerns that they had, that the hearts, and, and even with some of the concerns about at least one of the kids, they were able to always keep the children, pull them out of school, do homeschooling, isolate them more. Mm. Yeah, I think this story is a really clear example of the disparate treatment um, that adoptive families receive versus birth families. Um because, yeah, there were serious warning signs of actual abuse. And Sarah had been charged. She pled guilty to domestic abuse for leaving bruises all over one of her children. And so it was, you know, where the birth families were struggling with issues of neglect, um, which can often be confused with poverty-related conditions. So, you know, child care issues, housing instability, that kind of thing. Mm. Um the adoptive moms were really, um, the, the warning signs were much more dire. The kids being so small that they weren't on growth charts, that's alarming. The doctor who looked at them said, well, we don't know their biological parents, so maybe they're all just small. But the kids came from two biological families. And so uh, five of them not being on the growth charts should have really been more alarming than it was. Let me go to caller Katie in Sonoma. Hi, Katie. Thanks for calling. Yes, uh, yes, I'm a retired public health nurse, and I've worked with Child Protective Services for many years. And I know that in Sonoma County, at least, and many places in California, they have a family maintenance program that actually supports these uh, families that need the extra support so that their children don't get taken away. And they can they can provide all kinds of things, transportation, child care, help with housing, um, and I'm wondering if the other states where these children came from had those kind of programs. Um, it, does Texas do this, Ro- Roxana? Yeah. Um, you know, that's a good question. I think that most of those programs are at the county level. Um, you know, Texas doesn't have a program like that, as far as I know. Um, but also, you know, the problem with supporting families while still being in the CPS system is that um, there's still a lot of punitive, you know, it's, there's a threat of removal essentially. And so it's, it's still really um, some families who really need the extra help and support are still really scared to receive it because they don't want to get the ball rolling on what could ultimately result in the removal of their kids. Hmm. Well, JP writes, there's an episode of Atlanta that references this. It's told from the perspective of one of the boys. And in the end, he doesn't die, but saves everyone. Really moving. You've mentioned Devante's brother, Dante Davis. um, And could you tell us a little bit more about about him and the toll that his separation from Devante and his siblings, the toll it took on him? Yeah, Dante... um was the oldest when he was removed along with his siblings um, from his aunt's house. So he was 10 years old at that time. And he understood, I think far better than the other kids, what was going on and that, um, that he was being removed from his family and that that was, that seemed to be a permanent thing. Um, And he didn't handle it well. 
he acted out violently. And I think um, his trauma response uh, ultimately landed him in like a restrictive, um, they call it a residential treatment center, but it's essentially a institution for foster youth who uh, like Dante are older or hard to place because of behavioral issues. So he spent years in that institution. And while he was there, um, I have his foster care file. He shared it with me and he would every single time he would talk to his caseworker, he would beg and plead them for, um, to see his, to see his siblings, to call them on the phone, um, to write them a letter. And he even, you know, he, uh, even convinced them to ask the heart women, uh, if he could be in contact and they had, they said no, but he not only was split from his siblings, he wasn't allowed to contact his parents, even though he was still in Houston and they were really, really desperate to see each other. Both of both the parents and Dante, they really wanted to reconnect. And ultimately when he was 16, he did end up returning home to Nathaniel Davis who never gave up. Mm-hmm. Um, but by that time, he was so traumatized by all the things that had happened. He had experienced abuse by a staff member um, in the place that he was living. Um, and then, you know, by by the, by age 19, he was incarcerated for the first time. Do you want to talk a little bit about, we're coming up on a break, but what it took for you to gain his trust so that he would share so much with you? So when I uh, first started talking to him, he was in prison and he didn't know that his siblings had been murdered. Um, And I ended up, it took about a year basically of hanging out with Dante before he sat down for an actual interview with me. So his ability to trust has been really affected, deeply affected by his childhood. Yeah. We're talking again with Roxana Asgarian, long court reporter for the Texas Tribune, author of the book, We Were Once a Family, A Story of Love, Death, and Child Removal in America. And we're hearing from you, our listeners, what you remember about that 2018 murder of the six adoptive children uh, by by two women, Jennifer and Sarah Hart, the children Sierra, Abigail, Jeremiah, Devante, Hannah, and Marcus. 866-733-6786, the number to call to join the conversation. Find us at KQED Forum on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter. Email forum at kqed.org. I'm Mina Kim. Stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the 2018 murders of six children by their adoptive parents who also committed suicide when they drove their family off a cliff in Mendocino in March of that year. 
that David's children were Devante, 15, Jeremiah, 14, and Sierra, 12, at the time of their death. The Sherrick children were Marcus, 19, Hannah, 16, and Abigail, 14, at the time of their death. And uh, you, our listeners, are sharing what you remember of that story, the reactions you had, the impressions you were left with, any questions that remain for you Celia writes, I think one of the reasons we want to know a motive in these kinds of murders is actually to distance ourselves from the possibility of it happening to us. Oh, that's why. Phew. I'll never be in that situation. It's actually the opposite of empathy. I remember the case well and feared it would become a rallying cry against gay adoption while also lamenting the loss of lives not yet lived. Before the break, Roxana, you were talking about your relationship with Dante, and you do talk about in your book the process of getting to know Dante and other members of the Davis family and the Shirk children and the Shirk families, that that you feel like you come to take on a role that may not be traditional <laughs> in terms of a journalistic role. It, it doesn't really adhere to the traditional journalistic boundaries. Why was that something that really stood out to you through this process? I think that um, most journalism, you know, and the and the rules that go along with it are uh, tailored to. We do a lot of news really fast, and um, even long form doesn't often get. You don't get the time really with sources, and so I found myself when I was, you know, I spent years with these folks, and I got to know them really well, and. Um, you know, they were experiencing, they're still living in poverty. And so they're still experiencing a lot of crises related to that. And I felt like, um, you know, the boundaries, the traditional journalistic boundaries don't really apply when you know someone for five years. Um, So I had to sort of find my own way ethically on what I felt like was um, appropriate. Mm -hmm. Um, There were a couple ways that, you know, I'm in the book, because of that, because I felt like transparency is really important there. Um, I still feel like this is deep journalism and I don't see it as advocacy, but, um, you know, I told, I told one of the families, I felt like I have to be in there in this book so that I can be transparent about that. Um, and I also felt like that's important to the story for people to know that nobody called them. (laughs) Um, so, you know, I think I, I did kind of feel like I was out there in the in the ocean with no compass, so to speak. But um, but, you know, ultimately, I, I felt like being transparent about my choices uh, was the best course of action. Well, Bethany writes, as an adopted person, I have lots of firsthand experience with people diminishing my story in favor of my adoptive parents' narrative about them saving me. My biological father didn't even know I was born and has told me many times that he and my whole family would have done anything to keep me if they knew. Most adopted children have biological families that want them, but the popular narrative is that they were unwanted and that adoption saved them. I was abused by my adoptive parents. And I still have a hard time with people not believing me now at the age of 41. Thank you for highlighting all the ways the adoption system is broken. Adopted kids are more likely to have substance abuse problems, go to prison, and to commit suicide. We need major reform to keep families together for the sake of our entire society, and especially for the sake of our children. Bethany, thanks for for sharing that. I don't know if you have a reaction to what you hear Bethany sharing, uh, Roxana. 
Yes, I I really appreciate that comment so much and that and that lived experience because I think that's really real that adoptees can feel like their actual experiences are overridden by the narrative that their adoptive parents want to tell. Um, I think a lot of adoptees were really triggered by this story specifically for that reason, because Jennifer Hart was the one talking. And as a result, we don't really know what the kids were feeling or going through when they were living with the hearts. Yes, that earlier call that that was worried that Devante's eyes had a certain quality that felt almost dead inside. You talk about just the performative nature that the kids, not the performative nature, but the performance they had to do um, to be able to survive for their adoptive parents and the stories that they were telling the outside world. Yeah. And, you know, um, when I first sat down with Sherry Davis, that's Devante's birth mother, um, she mentioned this uh, this photo and said, look at him. He's in pain. Mm-hmm. Why weren't they helping him? Um, you know, it struck her that that was an image of pain and of sadness and not an image of racial reconciliation. Right. Let me go to caller Lisa in Redwood City. Hi, Lisa, you're on. Hi. Hi there. I'm going to try to do this without crying. This whole story is so emotional and for everybody involved, I'm sure. But my comment, um, I'm an adoptive parent, um, and we have worked very hard. I, I certainly don't want to diminish anybody else's story and anybody else's views. We've worked very hard to make sure that with our children, we are talking to them very honestly about what their situation was, what their birth parent situation was. For one of our children, his um, birth mother and her family are still connected to us. We've spent time for our other children. Uh, Her birth mother has decided she does not want to be connected. Both birth fathers have not been connected. But we've worked very hard to to talk about the fact that choices that were made were really made for these children, not choices that we made, um, to make sure that they are feeling as connected as they want to be to their birth story, to their birth families, and making sure to honor the choices that were made by, by the birth families. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess I just want to make sure that people know that there are adoptive families that I think are working hard to, to, to do what I think and what others think would be the right thing. And I just am having a broken heart about the stories that are coming from people who are adoptees or who've been in the foster care system. And of course, this whole story which we follow very closely when it happens. So thank you for giving me the time. Well, Lisa, thanks for calling in. And, and thank you for sharing that and about what it sounds like you're trying to share about the love of the biological family or the birth family of your kids uh, that you adopted. Roxana, um, as Gary, and do you feel like there is more of this happening, that you're seeing evidence of people recognizing and actually acting on a recognition of how important it is for people to know their birth families or understand their circumstances? Um, I think, I think that there are adoptive families who really do prioritize connections with birth families. Um, I do think though, that legally it's really at the discretion of the adoptive parents and um, that that's a really hard triangle Hmm. to, um, for everybody, 
for all, all sides of that. Right. Um, because, you know, birth parents, um, have their struggles. It's, I think it's hard to see other people parenting who you probably still consider your own children, you know, um, like legal separations, um, legal terminations, that's a piece of paper and that's what the outside world thinks. But when you're a parent, um, you know, that's usually a lifelong (laughs) change in your identity and that uh, doesn't go away with a piece of paper. Well, Leslie writes, these are the problems of a rights-based ethics system rather than care-based ethics system. Taking children away from their parents does huge damage. The focus needs to be on the care needs of the family of origin, not the rights of the parents. If there was at least one system change, then Roxana, that, that you would really want to make sure people hear as a way of trying to to address just some of the, the terrible issues that plagued the three children of each family, six in total, um, what would that be? I think that research has shown that kids do best with their parents, and if not with their parents, then with their families. And I think that um, we need to remove a lot less kids from their homes. Uh, I think one one policy way of doing that is to increase the legal protections for birth parents in the court system, in the CPS courts, because, um, you know, again, most of these, almost all of these parents are in poverty and are getting appointed attorneys. And there's a question of getting a good vigorous defense and um, you know, there are, there are very big, uh, there are, there are these tragic outliers. And then there's the vast majority of cases that could and should be resolved within the home. Let me go to caller Sarah in Santa Rosa next. Hi, Sarah. Hi, thanks for taking my call. I, I just wanted to say, I've been feeling a great deal of grief, um, over this conversation, I retired from Alameda County um, in 2019 and um, worked as a manager with a relative approval process there for several years in foster care. And I'm just grateful for California's laws around relative um, placements and uh, seeking um, ways in which to ensure that these children that are removed can stay with family. And we made every effort and focused on that and in my work. And uh, I really felt horrible when I heard this story um, and and all, all so many levels of it. But um, just want to say that, that, that the process that California mandates is um, really beneficial to maintaining children with their families. Well, Sarah, thanks. Thanks for sharing that. And yes, we are getting a fuller picture of what happened, at least to Sierra, Abigail, Jeremiah, Devante, Hannah, and Marcus um, from Roxanne Asgarian's book, We Were Once a Family, A Story of Love, Death, and Child Removal in America. And I should remind listeners, you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Roxanne, you you came to to play a pretty... um, intense role in facilitating the transfer of some of the children's remains to their birth families. Can you take us there? Um, 
how that transfer happened, what the experience was like for you as well as for the families and why you became that person? Mm. Um, so in my earliest conversations with the, with both birth families, the birth moms had asked about the children's remains and what was to come of them. Uh, they both wanted their kids back with them. Um, and so uh, Tammy Sherrick had asked me to, if I could figure that out or just figure out what was going on with the remains, um, because they were legally severed from their kids. The next of kin was actually the parents of Jennifer and Sarah Hart. Um, Jennifer and Sarah were estranged from their parents. So, and so that means the parents didn't know each other. So it was a pretty um, awkward and awful situation for everybody involved, I think, uh, because the parents had a huge um, responsibility with the remains and uh, the, the, tra the tragedy was instigated by their kids. And so I think um, they were feeling really bad about it. And so Douglas Hart, who is the dad of Jennifer, uh, we got in touch, I got in touch with him and he said he wanted the birth families to have the remains. And so hmm. uh, we talked about it for about a year before I ended up going up there to South Dakota to, uh, to get the, 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 some of the remains of the kids and, and bring them back to the birth families. Um, it was really intense for me. Uh, I did it because I felt like there was really no other way to make it happen because none of the families were in contact with each other and uh, no official was playing any role whatsoever in this. And it felt like if I didn't do it, I, I didn't think there was a way that it would be done. How are they now? How are the families now? Your book is out. You're sharing and reliving and they're reliving some of these experiences. How are yeah. they doing? Uh, I think uh, people are struggling in various ways. Um, Dante is incarcerated again. Um, his dad, Nathaniel Davis, passed away last fall. Mm. And, um, you know, Tammy Sherrick, she's in a, a relationship that uh, where she's experiencing some domestic violence. So she's everybody is kind of continuing to exist and feel all of their feelings while also dealing with all the things that are happening in their lives now. As the listener writes, society is as healthy as its treatment of its most vulnerable citizens. We have failed. Mm -hmm. Amy in Berkeley, you're on the line. Go ahead, Amy. You're on. Hi there. Hi, thank you for taking my call. I just listening to everybody's stories. I, I'm, and I have my own experience also with being in foster care and group homes and being separated from a sibling. I'm just. It all of a sudden occurred to me, like, why? Also, are this isn't why I call, but like, why are children who are in foster care and group homes and an adoption where things may be difficult not given therapy like throughout and early on? Um, I was suicidal from the time I was like 10 years old after a number of separations and and foster care. Um, but that's not why I called. Um, I know what it's like. Um, I was when I was 
ended up in a group home in my teens. I was separated from my sister, who had been the only consistent person in my life. And that really just took a a huge toll. So I so understand this. Um, Mm -hmm. Without knowing that we're almost at the end of the show, I just want to thank you so much for this show. It could go on for hours. Um, I wish it could. But um, that said, there's an organization that headquartered and started here in Oakland called First Place for Youth that provides support care because when people age out of the system and turn 18, they don't have all that family support that most young people have to help with college, someplace to live, um, getting jobs, all that guidance. And First Place for Youth, it's firstplaceforyouth.org, provides support for former foster youth from age 18 to 25, helping them even like like paying for sponsoring apartments for them to live in because so many former foster youth, the percentage mm-hmm. that become homeless is just astronomical. It's well, just really significant. So, Amy, I'm so yeah. glad you called and, and thank you for sharing that that resource with us. And yes, Amy's right. We are at the end of the hour. And Roxanne, I, I, I don't know if there is just one final detail that you would like to share of any of the kids that we haven't been able to share yet on the show in our last 30 seconds. Um, I guess I wanted to speak to Amy because I think her experience was sounds so much like Dante's mm. um, with the sibling separation and the suicidality. And I yeah. just want to say um, thank you for sharing. And also that's such a harmful thing that we do to children to remove them from everybody that they know and to put them uh, to isolate them. I think it's it's only normal reaction mentally. And so I just want to thank, thank Amy for sharing that. Well, and thank you, Roxana, for, for sharing the story of Sierra, Abigail, Jeremiah, Devante, Marcus, and, and Hannah, um, because I know that it took also a very big emotional toll on you as well to do it. And I thank the listeners for sharing their stories with us. Caroline Smith produced today's segment, the book is We Were Once a Family, Thank you for listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising-Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
all over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.